Welcome back to the Lost Letterman podcast. This is pod number 19, and I am Jim Weber, the founder of the site. And I am Jordan Rabinowitz, the managing editor. All right, so we got to start with the Duke-Miami game, one of the craziest finishes in college football history. I think no one was really watching this game until all of a sudden, you know, Duke scores with six seconds left. They kick off, and during this nine-minute delay, people are saying, flip over to Duke-Miami, flip over to Duke-Miami. And you see the eight lateral touchdown that included one, a knee being down when a ball was being lateral, two, a block in the back or several blocks in the backs that weren't called, and three, a player that was running on the field when they were about at the five-yard line, uh, all of which could have called the, the play back. And now David Cutcliffe is asking for the NCAA to overturn the game and give Duke a win. I don't know what you think about that would be you know, a, a huge change and could open up a Pandora's box. What do you think about that? I think they should be able to reverse the game. And I don't – I understand the opening Pandora's box argument and this is a slippery, a slippery slope and it sets a bad precedent. But you can pick out the extenuating circumstances and I would still say be very, very cautious about – how you would go about reversing game results after the fact. But to me, it's the last play of the game. If it was a reviewable play that wasn't the last play of the game, they would have reviewed it and probably reversed it. So this, to me, is just an extension of them reviewing the call. It would just happen to be hours or days after the game, which isn't a great look. But to me, this was the last play of the game. The guys, all yeah, other there than zero, equal, his knee was down. Yeah, and there was zero seconds on the clock. And so. there were zero seconds on the clock. And that is a cut and clear uh, scenario where that was Duke's win. Yeah. Uh, they won that game. And I think, I know it could open up a can of worms and Miami fans and purists would not be happy about it, but I think they should be able to overturn this one. Yeah, now we actually didn't discuss this beforehand, so this isn't like, hey, let's each pick a side, but I actually, I'm on the other side where I think that I just can't imagine Miami going in the locker room, everyone dancing, woo, partying on the plane back, and then they find out Sunday, sorry, the NCAA has overruled your win. I, I just think once you leave the field, the game is over. You can't you can't change anything. And I was all about uh, MLB overturning uh, the blown perfect game for Armando Galarraga. But now I've, I've since seen the light. And I'm all about, you know, the NBA is so good about, you know, now when they review calls, it goes to the league office. And they have 10 guys over there with 10 computers. We're breaking it down. We're going to get this call right. And that's what amazes me is that instead of jumping straight to having the NCAA overturn it, which I think the ACC would do it because the NCAA is a joke. I think the ACC should have guys in a corporate office that are, you know, all around a a computer screen or TV screens analyzing this and getting the call right. You know, there's this huge delay where there's a guy up in a booth figuring this out. You got the the, the refs on the sideline with the headset on. I mean, replay is basically the same as it's been since they brought it into college football in the 90s. I think now, you know, it should be much more advanced where we have the league office involved and we have – Many more people involved. It just seems like, you know, everyone could sit there and see, okay, his knee was down. There were blocks in the back. 
I mean, the TV crew was breaking it down as it was happening and showed, okay, uh, this game should be Duke's win, but somehow the refs get it wrong. Well, the fact that we at home can tell that Duke should have won, but the refs couldn't is ridiculous. So I think it's about getting it right at the time by changing the procedures as opposed to uh, changing this this rule so that you can overturn games after the fact. I mean, imagine, uh, you know, and this happened with Colorado-Missouri back in 1990, that they realized their mistake but then said, okay, we're not going to go back and uh, change it 30 minutes after we the game was over. And imagine if this was a national championship game and this happened and they're celebrating, you're buying your T-shirts, you're flying home celebrating, and then, oh, by the way, actually, we've, we've retroactively. The same way you don't do it with the Heisman Trophy where Reggie Bush, that was vacated, they didn't give it to Vince Young. I just think I just think you can't do it. Yeah, those are all good points, and I do think the reaction from Miami's camp, if the game was overturned after they celebrate a win, oh my would be worse than <laughs> what's come out of Duke and basically every – sane, objective college football fan There'd be in the every, last few days. Every knucklehead in the Miami-Dade area would be driving up to the ACC office <laughs> I wouldn't with pitchforks. I wouldn't be envious of the ACC <laughs> officials who would have to deal with that. I still think, and to your point about Armando Galarraga, who's now become more famous for having the perfect game that wasn't uh, than if he had just gotten a perfect game. It, it, to me, it's just... I'm like... Super thirsty for justice. That's just who yeah. I am in sports and in life. And uh, uh, from a third-party standpoint, just seeing Duke get jobbed like that, not to take anything away from the rest of that play, whatever may have happened, is still pretty incredible. Yeah. Uh, uh, what, what, my, what my guy lateral the ball back a millisecond earlier, uh, there'd be no qualms about it. But, yeah, to me, I, I favor – getting things absolutely right over all else. And uh, it would be dicey to have this happen and then have in the future other teams, you know, who get jobbed on calls then complain to their conference, well, you overturned Miami Duke. Why can't you return ours? Yeah. And the league would have to be firm and say this was the last play of the game. You know, there were no other and ifs or buts that could have happened after it. Zero seconds on the clock. The guy's knee was down. The play is dead. The game yeah, is and, over. And I guess maybe I would look at it differently if I was a Duke fan. or and, and I was watching Mike Greenberg say that they should overrule the ending of the game. And I guess for me, I've just kind of moved on from that. It's just not thinking about Duke-Miami. Thinking in the future, I think it would be a lot better if they just fixed the replay process as opposed to said, oh, okay, let's, let's give the office the ability to overturn the game up. Uh, a day later. I think that you would have much less incidents um, where you need to overturn it if you had a bunch of guys in the league office overviewing it. Um, so that that's kind of how I was looking at it as opposed to, hey, how do we write this wrong from Saturday? Uh, but I want to get to Virginia Tech, uh, another school in the ACC uh, whose fans are feeling a bit down. Um, been a really rough year for Frank Beamer, and he has decided to retire at the end of the year. And there's all this talk. I think a lot of people, myself included, thought Bud Foster would take over because he's been there so long. He's turned down a lot of opportunities. But, you know, there's a lot of talk that he won't be the guy. Fans don't want him to be the guy. And then he's not head coach material. And that Virginia Tech really wants to go to an offensive coach 
after seeing uh, their offense stuck in the Stone Age for the last several years. So uh, there was an article today by Travis Haney on candidates for the job. There is Rich Rodriguez has come up a lot because of Whit Babcock, Whit, Whit Babcock, the new AD at Virginia Tech that was close to Rich Rod at West Virginia. Uh, Justin Fuente from Memphis, Tom Herman from Houston. You know, these are the, the hot names in the group of five coaches. Kirby Smart, the Alabama defensive coordinator. Mark Stoops from Kentucky. And Pep Hamilton, the offensive coordinator for the off, uh, Indianapolis Colts. I guess your thoughts on those names or someone not mentioned there that you think would be great for Virginia Tech? I think Rich Rod would be the smartest choice because of his relationship with with Babcock from West Virginia, but also he seems to be the most well-established coach of that bunch. You know, he obviously has Power 5 experience, which uh, Tom Herman and Fuente, uh, Matt Rule, other names who popped up, uh, can't speak for. And uh, I think what's in Virginia Tech's best interest at this point, there's no easy way to replace a legend, a guy who's been there for three decades and the most you can ask for is stability. And I think bringing in someone with no power conference head coaching experience uh, is going in the wrong direction. Uh, and I think Rich Rod would um, have a lot of success back east. We're seeing him struggle now this year with Arizona, although I don't think that's a testament to bad coaching. Uh, I just think it would be a good fit. Yeah. I mean, I would have no problem with that. And when you have the AD relationship with the coach you want, that certainly helps. Um, You know, I think he's got a pretty good setup there at Arizona where he's recruiting guys uh, in Arizona and California. Uh, He's had a lot of success, has a lot of job security. Um, I could see if Virginia Tech dumped uh, a boatload, uh, boatload of money uh, that he would be tempted to come back and coach in the ACC. But I keep saying this guy's name, and I feel like a broken record, but Matt Rule, he's doing a great job at Temple, came about a minute away from beating Notre Dame. Um, you know, he, he's had experience as an assistant on the offensive and defensive side of the ball. He's uh, an East Coast guy for life, uh, grew up in State College, uh, went to Penn State, um, and has now been at Temple for a while. So he recruits, you know, the D.C., New York area, um, you know, Virginia. Uh, so I, I think he'd be a great candidate if they can. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not going to uh, say Rich Rod wouldn't be a great hire. But uh, if they can't get him, I would think Justin Fuente and Tom Herman uh, are going to greener pastures because everyone wants those guys. Those are the two hottest names in the group of five coaches. Uh, Kirby Smart. You know, I know he's turned down a lot of head coaching positions because he wants to go straight to a Power 5 school. You know, if you're Virginia Tech, I have a hard time saying, okay, like, yeah, let's let's see if, if you're head coaching material with a really good program. Like, you, you know, for me, it's kind of like, you know, you got to go prove yourself if you think you're that good of a head coach. And then Mark Stoops, I'm not saying he's done a bad job at Kentucky. He's doing a fine job. But they've gotten waxed the last couple of weeks. And Kentucky does not look like anything more than a five and seven or six and six team. So I have a hard time, even if you say, well, that's Kentucky saying, okay, well, at Virginia Tech, he's going to win 10 games because he won five games at Kentucky. Yeah, I still couldn't (laughs) justify hiring Mark Stoops over a hot 
group of five coach like Matt Rule or Tom Herman. And to your point about Rich Rodriguez having a cushy situation in Arizona, uh, I'm reading right now he's set to make uh, $4 million a year if he stays at Arizona in the long run, which is obviously very difficult to walk away from. And, you know, we're not sure if Virginia Tech can match that. But, yeah, I, I'm uh, I'm totally up in the air right now. It's just not – it just sucks for Virginia Tech because this is pretty much the worst time to have a head coaching vacancy. Because yeah, there's, there's so many of so, them. So, I mean, at least 10 programs fighting for head coaches and some big ones too, like uh, USC, South Carolina, Miami. Uh, so it's going to be a crazy carousel this offseason. I'm not envious and of that's Virginia what's, Tech. And that's what's so tough about when we, when we say these names, it's kind of like free agency in pro sports where it's like these these mid-level free agents or mid-level jobs, like we can say these names, you know, we can just throw out names now, but the hottest names are going to go to the better jobs. So it really depends on who's left when Virginia Tech finally has their say on who they want. Um, so, it, you know, yeah, we can throw out Tom Herman, but if USC won't want Tom Herman, well, Tom Herman's not going to Virginia Tech. So it's, it's really a wait-and-see game. For every program except for you know USC, South Carolina, and Miami, everyone else kind of get in line after that. Um, so we'll see where that goes. But it's also sad that uh, Virginia Tech doesn't have a guy. You know he had so much success, and you would hope that he had so much success that he had someone that he could just bring in uh, that, to succeed him. And that's kind of the way you want it to go. Unfortunately, it's not going to work out like that. And then whenever you bring in an outsider, you don't really know how that's going to go. Um, I, I'd say Rich Rodriguez in Michigan is a good example of an outsider where you go, oh, that didn't work out quite how we wanted. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, Frank Beamer, I think, has been the head coach there for 29 years. So a, a lot's going to change in the next couple of months. Uh, speaking of, of changes with coaches who've been at a school a long time, Mark Richt is on, he's been on the hot seat for about 10 years. <laughs> Uh, but his hot seat is now turned into a flaming ejector seat where people want him gone. People are sick of, you know, the high ranking in the preseason polls and the underachieving uh, once they finally get to the SEC schedule. Your thoughts on whether or not they keep Mark Rick. And I'll just point out Nebraska as an example. So Nebraska, nine win, Bo Pelini. They fire him. They bring in Mike Riley. Oh, wait, we're three and six. So that's that's worst case scenario. And the reason you don't fire him, the reason you do is saying, okay, this is Georgia. We should be competing for national titles. We're not even competing for SEC titles. And Missouri is going to the SEC title game instead of us in the recent years. Yeah, well, nothing looks great when you put up nine points combined <laughs> in your last two games. Or 12 points, I'm sorry. Yeah. Still still not good. Yeah. Uh, especially, you know, at home against a Florida team that was not expected to compete for a championship in your division. Well, that, that's and now what, they're in the driver's That's seat. what hurts them so much is Florida's expectations for were so low. And you see Jim McElwain come in in year one. And all of a sudden, you know, their top, top 15 team – that almost beat LSU with their backup quarterback, and you're saying, "Wait, we have all this talent at Georgia, and we're just getting pummeled yeah. by them." Yeah, I'm sorry, that wasn't a home game, too. Obviously, yeah. in Jacksonville, but I don't think they're going to fire him. But should they? Uh, I don't. Maybe yeah. <laughs> it's 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 hard to uh, say. Oh, they lost three out of their last four games. They should go with the. They should fire the head coach. 
more to the point of why they shouldn't fire him, going back to what we talked about three minutes ago, uh, all the programs and the few big programs looking for head coaches, the grass is always greener. And uh, you just said, hit the nail on the head with Nebraska, as they fire Bo Pelini, a guy who didn't lose more than four games seven years in a row, which obviously is kind of like not the greatest result, but it was still yeah, It's like the middle of the bell curve. <laughs> right. And, and that was Bo Pelini in Nebraska. And uh, here in Georgia, where the recruiting ground is fertile and uh, Rick has had 15 years of generally of success – Unless you have a, a, a real great predecessor lined up in mind, I don't think you can just cut him loose after a bad stretch. And we'll see what happens from here on out. Their schedule is pretty easy. Uh, home against Kentucky, at Auburn, home against Georgia Southern, at Georgia Tech. So they can still end this regular season 9-3, and three, which obviously isn't great considering what their expectations were coming in, which is like, I sound like a broken record because you could say that about the last 10 Georgia seasons, but that's also the pollsters not doing a great job at the beginning of the year. That's not entirely Mark Rick's fault. Um, I just don't think this is the time to fire him. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to go on the other end. I'm not trying to do PTI where we just disagree on everything. No, it's but, good. But my thing with Mark Rick is I've seen it so many times where they just underachieve. And this year is probably the worst case of that. I know that Nick Chubb got hurt. I know there are, you know, circumstances here at the Georgia job. But to get waxed like Florida, that was kind of the last straw for me. Uh, And getting pummeled at home against Alabama when expectations were so high. I mean, they're not even close in these games. So I think I would be shocked if they outright fire him. I think it's going to be one of those situations, and this is what Michigan did with Lloyd Carr, where it was, you know, I'm resigning, wink, wink. But they told me that uh, we're looking for someone else. So I think that's how Georgia will handle it because they don't want to deal with the backlash of firing such a successful coach. But I think Georgia, you know, I would say if you're a program like Indiana and you have Kevin Wilson and okay, we're kind of on the fence. You know, his offense is exciting, but I could see us uh, moving in another direction because it's not been as successful as we like. I'd say for programs like that, you keep them because there's going to be so many openings. If you're Georgia, I think this is the second best job on the market behind USC. So I think you can get a really, really successful coach. You don't need to go in the group of five to get a – I mean, you know, if they if they are really sold on a guy like Tom Herman, maybe they get him. But you could go up – you could maybe get a fired NFL coach. You could get Bill O'Brien. You could get a really successful power five coach uh, that is just tired of one place or feels like the Georgia job is better. So – I'd be I'd be totally fine with Georgia partying with Mark Richt and saying, look, you know, maybe this will blow up in our face, but we just can't keep doing the status quo year after year. You know, he's been here almost 20 years, and every year we sit here, you know, saying we had the talent, we were in the preseason top 10, and now we're playing in the Capital One Bowl again. So I, I if I were the AD, I would move in another direction you know, I, I feel like I'm saying that over and over, and I, I don't want to be the message board fan that keeps calling for Coach's head, but as, as a fan uh, who's seen this uh, with a program just kind of deteriorating and being in that middle of the bell curve, I know there's nothing worse than feeling like, okay, here's another 8-4 and four season, 
uh, where we underachieve and have to watch our rivals. You know, that that's the worst thing. Georgia has to sit there and watch uh, Alabama and now Florida pass it. And LSU, these programs they consider themselves on par with, uh, just trample all over them. Yeah. To your point, there is something to be said about having the recruiting talent and putting together a team that's ranked in the top ten every year. You know, I, I mean, I just got on Pulsar's for misranking them, but if you see this year after year, you know, the pollsters are probably doing something right and Georgia's probably yeah. doing something wrong. And yeah, maybe Mark Richt isn't ringing the most out of uh, his players and the talent that he has, but yeah, again, I'm just not into making knee jerk reactions like this. I, if he loses any of these games coming up, my opinion might change pretty swiftly. Yeah. But. I'm still in the let's give it time camp. Okay. All right, so moving to another coach. Well, he's not on the hot seat with his job, but just under scrutiny, Brian Kelly on the sideline against Temple, reaching and grab an assistant coach by the collar. I'm not going to say he strangled him. It wasn't that dramatic. Um, You know, I think people calling for a suspension, I think that's a little tough. But I think it was jarring to see a coach – uh, physically put their hands on someone and like kind of jerk him by the collar back. Your thoughts on how severe it was and how it should be handled? I'm not exactly sure what Notre Dame should do. It's just it's pretty unprecedented because Notre Dame's not going to want to suspend uh, their head coach coming down this important stretch. Still a one loss team. Uh, the playoff is st- even with all these undefeated teams, it's still a possibility. Uh, it, it it was not a good look on Brian Kelly. I don't know if they should fine him. Um, I, personally, I I do think he should be suspended for a game. I, again, I don't think they will suspend him. He'll sort that out with his assistant and figure it out internally. Um, but obviously, not a good look. And should be punished for it, I think. Yeah, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with a little more uh, tempered response, which is I, I don't think it's just, he should be suspended. I know this stuff happens in the locker room all the time, but I just don't think you can put your hands on someone else and not apologize for it. And that, that's what bothered me is after the game he said, oh, I was trying to gain control of the sideline and he was going to cost us 15-yard penalty. So it's kind of like it was his fault and he was out of control. And it's like, well – you know, I think this is setting bad precedent. Well, okay, if we get fired up enough and someone else is enough in the wrong that I can put my hands on them, you know, does that mean other assistant coaches are going to put hands on each other? Does that mean players are going to put hands on each other? So all I'm asking from Brian Kelly is to publicly apologize. Now, people are saying, well, he's not going to do that. Have you ever heard Brian Kelly? And he probably won't. But I think the school should ask him to issue a public apology saying, look, it was the heat of the moment. I was trying to gain control of the sideline. But in doing so, you know, I lost control myself and lost my computer. That, and I think that's the bare minimum you ask. And all I think it's saying is, look, I can be held uh, responsible too, and I can make mistakes. And I just think it's disturbing for Brian Kelly to never admit he makes a mistake. You know, it's, it's not my fault. It was his fault that I put my hand on his collar. And I, I just think it's as simple as that. And if I'm Brian Kelly, it's in my best interest to apologize because yeah. – I'm a guy who's going to be looked at by NFL teams this offseason. Yeah. Uh, and I want to put on my best face for them and show that I'm not a guy who will 
lose it at the first sign of adversity. Yeah, and I just think coaches are in automatic deny mode, which deny was my fault, deny I didn't eat deny, deny, deny. That's just like how they think. But I think if you look, step back and looked at it, and, and there's not a very good public image of Brian Kelly, if it's fair or not. But I think if you step back and said, you know what, I made a mistake. You know, I don't think, uh, you know, that this isn't like punching him, but I do apologize for losing my cool. Uh, the last thing we want to talk about is there's been so many Halloween uniforms, orange and black, uh, all black with shiny logos like Texas A&M. And we want to talk about how about some Thanksgiving themed uniforms in the next month. Your thoughts on a great Thanksgiving themed uniform. I want Nebraska to go full cornucopia. <laughs> I know a cornucopia isn't exactly corn. It's just like the horn that you put no, it's genius. all the festive autumnal <laughs> things into. Uh, just have the helmet, the face of the helmet be a cornucopia. Maybe just like, you know, Adidas does some pretty bonkers stuff oh, with Nebraska is, as it is. No, so no, Adidas is taking notes right put now. Put like yams <laughs> and string beans on the jersey, like some dark meat on one chest, on one side of the chest, some light meat, white meat on the other side, uh, pouring out of the cornucopia <laughs> helmet. Uh, just let it all hang out. This is Adidas' time to shine uh, with the Huskers. and they, I think they got to do it. <laughs> you know how much... I hate Adidas and all the things they've done with Nebraska uniform, but I would stand up and applaud with a slow clap if they did this. My alternate uniform is going to be the Virginia Tech Bay Cam, which one, signifies the season, and two, would be very morbid for the Hokie mascot. But I just think it would be a great thing to have that roasted turkey coming out of the oven. And we've seen some really awful Virginia Tech alternate uniforms with, like, the turkey paws uh, on the helmet and things of that nature. So I'd say the, the baked turkey signifying the state of the program and getting your, your mouth watering for Thanksgiving would be another ridiculous, hilarious combo. Very dark, but I like it. <laughs> All right, we'll talk to you next week after what should be an epic week of college football.